You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. It is my pleasure to introduce our guests for today. We've got my friend and colleague, Dr. Rebecca Harris. Uh, She is assistant professor of Bible at Messiah University. Her research and writing focus on early Jewish literature, particularly the Dead Sea Scrolls and the eschatological beliefs of the group that preserved them. Dr. Harris now teaches classes on biblical interpretation, New Testament literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the ancient Near Eastern and Hellenistic contexts of biblical literature. In addition to her work on early Jewish literature, Dr. Harris is currently working on a collaborative project designed to produce Bible curriculum for children and families informed by biblical studies and sociological perspectives. One of the goals that she hopes to address is the normalizing of whiteness in the majority of children's Bible curriculum that's currently on the market. And so, Rebecca, I'm just so grateful to have you here on Inverse. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Rebecca, we'd love for you to um, talk a little bit about the Bible curriculum and um, publishing dissertation that you've been working on. Oh, absolutely. The Bible curriculum thing is something that has come up a few times in my life. I used to be a children's pastor. And as a children's pastor, I had many moments where um, I was frustrated with what I was finding. It wasn't quite what I was hoping to have, what I wanted to to be able to to use to teach the kids at our church. We had a very diverse congregation and the materials themselves often didn't reflect um, the people in our congregation in terms of um, the content and then also the images. Mm -hmm. So this has been on my mind for quite some time. Once I pursued graduate school, um, I kind of left it on the back burner for a while and didn't really think that I would ever return to to thinking about children's curriculum. But just in the past few years, it's come up again, um, partly because I have two kids. I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. And now as a parent, (laughs) looking at children's curriculum again, I'm just noticing the opportunity that's there to produce something different. So recently, I've been in conversation with a few friends. One of them recently got his PhD in sociology, Henry Zonio, and we've been talking about how we might be able to put something together um, that that addresses some of the things that we've we've found that are are perhaps lacking in the curriculum that's currently on the market. And one of those things is representation um, in the images, although I think that's something that's getting a little bit better. There's a little bit more awareness there. Um, But in terms of the presentation of of the content of the Bible, um, now coming from a biblical studies perspective, I would like to help create something um, that presents Bible curriculum for kids from a perspective that's informed by biblical studies, that brings Mm -hmm. to light some of those things that Um, that we focus on related to historical context and cultural context and things that can help us better appreciate what's going on in the text. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, As a parent, thank you. Uh, We often talk about um, 
how there's so much need for um, uh, contextual theology, and yet there seems to be so much contextual theology for colonizers and uh, at, at the exclusion of uh, literally the majority of the world. So um, it's such important work. Thank you. Yeah, and this week, literally, Renee and I were having conversations um, because at our church, <coughs> just kind of thinking about like curriculum for the kids and Renee has kind of taken over overseeing like all the different teachers and stuff and the material. So we at our church, they use the Shine Bible, which is the Mennonite Church. And actually their images for the main Bible itself are actually much more diverse than most kids Bibles are. But for some strange reason, they're like the aids that they attached with it that are for the kids. They're all Eurocentric images again. It's just kind of weird. Like, how did they do the Bible better? And then I don't know. So anyway, so we were just having conversations around maybe some workarounds instead of reproducing and sharing those images with the kids that there's some other things that they could do. But anyway, but it, it, it's it's a still a real problem, even among groups that are trying to tackle it some are still failing in, in other ways. So, so oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of room, I think, to contribute in this area, even from yeah. different hermeneutical perspectives. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot that can be done. And working with, with Henry, uh, my friend, he also comes from the children's ministry world before he pursued a PhD in sociology, in large part, recognizing a lot of the disparity and, um, and issues with curriculum that was currently on the market. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca, uh, Jared also mentioned, you know, um, about dissertation. I don't know if you want to give, we might touch on that a little later, but I don't know if you want to just give a sneak peek in terms of like, I know you're working on publishing your dissertation. Absolutely. Um, it's turned into a total rewrite, so <laughs> a much bigger project than I initially anticipated. But um, essentially, I'm interested in the role of liturgy and rituals or worship practices in the life of the worshiping community. And my dissertation now working on the book um, focuses specifically on the Qumran movement. So the Qumran movement is the group that preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls for us. Qumran refers to the location, the settlement out in the wilderness um, along the Dead Sea where these people congregated and the scrolls were hidden in 11 caves along the Dead Sea. So the text that I'm working with um, refer specifically to practices related to the Qumran movement, to the people who lived out there, who copied texts, copied biblical texts or texts that are now part of our canon, and many other early Jewish texts, and then some of their own literature that tell us about how they govern their group. Um, so I'm really interested in how this group conceptualized their present time. They mm -hmm. thought about their own time as the last days they use the Hebrew term Aharit Hayamim, the last days. Um, and they see this time as, as a period that's really liminal in nature. They see themselves as already communing with angels um, and kind of living into this future reality already, which I find really interesting having grown up in a, a Pentecostal denomination mm. um, with a very lively worship experience and um, some overlaps there perhaps. But I also see a lot of parallels with New Testament notions of the kingdom of God and even the already not yet notion um, that the kingdom of God is in some way present, but not fully manifest. Um, I think there's a lot there to explore in terms of how Qumran eschatology relates to those particular notions in the New Testament. Yeah. 
So fascinating. Uh, well, we look forward to maybe we'll get into that a little bit more. But um, one of the things that we really like to do um, is to ground our experience in scripture. And so uh, what passage would you like to read um, to just kind of just ground our conversation moving forward? Yeah, thank you. I'd like to read a passage from Luke, um, Luke chapter 10, focusing on verses eight and nine. Um, but to provide a little context, this passage takes place in Jesus' ministry as he's sending out his disciples, um, sending out the 70. So I'll read the first couple verses in chapter 10 and then provide a little bit of a summary and then jump down to verses eight and nine. So in Luke 10, starting with verse one, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So they go out. Um, Jesus says, I'm sending you out like lambs. Don't take anything with you. Um, every town you go into, declare peace to this house and then stay in the same house, eat, drink, whatever they give you. So don't be concerned about dietary laws, just eat or take whatever is presented to you. And then down in verse eight, whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And it's that last part that I hope to focus on a little bit more in our talk, um, thinking about what it means that the kingdom of God has come near. What is the kingdom of God, you know, in this, in this context and um, how is it manifest? Rebecca, I already have so many questions. Um, and what you just highlighted there in terms of eat what is set before you and its implications for kosher law. I've like, I've preached this text before and I've never seen that. Um, you've just spelt out um, about the Qumran communities and I, I have questions about their interpretation in terms of that. But before we get to any of that, our standard questions, which you've already hinted at in terms of your Pentecostal um, upbringing is when do you first remember encountering the Bible? Will you set out for us a, a little bit of a biography of the importance of this book that um, your, your academic pursuits is now engrossed in? Yes, absolutely. Um, so to answer your first question, um, where do I first remember encountering the Bible? As early as I can remember, I remember being in church. And one of my earliest memories is having the comic, what was it? The Bible... Oh gosh, now the name is escape, escaping me. Um, the comic book Bible. Have you guys seen that? No. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not I sure which the... way this, this telling will go. Is this something that's actually really good or just really horrible? <laughs> oh, um, I have used it as a teaching aid recently um, as an example of how we might not read certain texts. But I have vivid memories of sitting in the pew at probably three years old and flipping through my comic book story Bible, um, you know, as somebody, as the pastor was preaching. Uh, so my earliest engagement was very much with the stories from the Bible. I remember learning all the common childhood stories um, as I got older, we were in Sunday school all the time. So much of my engagement with the Bible came through hearing, hearing the stories. And as I got older, I was part of a discipleship group at church. It's kind of the, um, 
It was our church's equivalent of Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, essentially. And one of the things that was required in order to complete the program uh, was to read the entire Bible. So between fourth and seventh grade, I read the entire Bible hmm. and it was not the best experience at that time. Um, thinking about a you know, fourth, fifth grader reading through Leviticus, um, not the most exciting. I didn't really understand why I was reading it. It was more something I needed to check off in order to complete my program. I wanted to appreciate it. I, you know, I knew that it was important. This is what I heard in my faith community, um, but I didn't, I didn't get a whole lot out of that experience in the way that it was presented at that time. At that time, I didn't really have a, a context or maybe the maturity to be able to deal appropriately with many of the texts. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's something, as I've looked back on that time, um, just the exposure that I had to the Bible. I'm grateful for the things that I learned, even if I didn't have the awareness or the ability to um, process or think deeply about them. Um, I am thankful for the exposure, but um, that was some of my earliest experiences with the Bible where, um, in addition to the stories, reading through it and, um, and really not understanding what I was reading at that age. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I don't think I had read all the way through the Bible at that age. I don't think so. I did in middle school. I was, I was reading the Bible on my own, like wanting to, but, um, but I was not going all the way through. It was like, you know, picking and choosing what I, found interesting. So I probably stayed away from Leviticus at that point. Um, a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jared, did you read Were Were you reading the Bible all the way through at an so early age? With my dyslexia, um, I, I don't think I really read the scriptures until I became a Christian, like in early high school. Yeah. Um, so uh, um, the my last year of primary school or elementary school you'd say uh sorry my first year of elementary school you'd say in the us um the scripture was still taught in school in australia this is government schools like general schools and so on my report card it mentions how well i know all the bible um stories and my enthusiasm for them so obviously um uh, like yourself rebecca there was a, a sense of um uh, it was in the air and it was an auditory communal experience of something that washes over you that is imaginative. And so like I've got a report card that says when I was little, that was my reality. Um, but scripture wasn't something on page for me until my early, early high school experience, probably. Yeah, interesting. So I'm curious, Rebecca, like and maybe you hinted a little bit when talking about how you um, well, I'll let you just answer like how like when you think about your experiences and your encounters with the Bible, would you describe it as something that was oppressive or liberating as something healing or helpful? I know you, you expressed some ambiguity in terms of the message itself, but how was how were you experiencing it? How was it being taught to you? I'm kind of curious about how you reflect on those kind of memories. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a mixture of both for me. Um, maybe a bit neutral early on. I didn't, you 
you know, aside from learning some stories, I didn't really reflect deeply. Um, but as I grew older, I started to struggle with some of some of the common stories that I had read, things like Noah's Ark, as I as I realized that many people died because I started to think about the implications of some of the stories as yeah. I thought about Jericho and marching around the wall and, and what happened to the people in that city. And then Rahab, what did it mean for Rahab, who is portrayed as the heroine, to watch her entire city, her people die. Mm. And here she is kind of the ideal proselyte, but her story seems so sad to me. Mm. So as I got older and started to reflect more on, on the implications of, of some of what I was reading in the Bible, it became, it became troubling in some way. I felt unsettled. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to side with the, um, I don't know, with the author or with the, the presentation, you know, that things turned out good because this was God's plan and it's okay. But there were pieces in there that, that I didn't know what to do with. And I remember asking questions occasionally um, with some of my church leaders. I feel like I was, I was that kid in youth group that would come up with the questions that, you know, nobody wanted to deal with. Right. <laughs> and it's fair. Because today I don't know how to deal with some of them. Um, but, you know, my poor youth pastor and pastor just sometimes were like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how to deal with that one. I don't know how to answer that. One of the things that I, I distinctly remember bringing up was why are the Old and the New Testament so different? At some point, it just struck me that they felt very different to me. Um, there were different institutions in place in each of them and demons were all over the new testament and i wasn't seeing <laughs> demons in the old testament yeah. so there were a number of things that just kind of felt disjointed to me and i remember asking asking one of our leaders and and his response i just kind of it was a blank stare and i get that now because <laughs> this was not something he was trained in you know he didn't that was not part of his seminary training um, but, but it, it was something that kind of stuck in the back of my head for me. And at the time I kind of felt like, okay, maybe these aren't the questions you ask. Maybe these are not things I need to worry about. So I tried to just kind of, you know, push them aside and, and move on. I was going to school to become a children's pastor. I loved working with kids. I don't need to know, you know, all of those details in order to be able to lead a children's ministry. So I kind of pushed them aside for a time, but that, that piece was always there. There was a curiosity there. I wanted to engage those questions more deeply, but I didn't really know how to, I knew that there must be more to the conversation than what I had been able to engage at that point. Mm. Interesting. I, I really relate to that. Um, uh, the annoying questions bit in Sunday school, the, 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 the ultimate punishment in the Sunday school. And my parents were part of this church until I was about the age of 10, um, is that you got thrown out of kids Sunday school and had to go sit with your parents in adult Sunday school. And my poor parents, the number of times where I had to do like that walk of shame from the kids' <laughs> classrooms into the main auditorium. And anyway, I, I deeply relate to that. Uh, Rebecca, we're really interested... Um, 
what parts of your story and what experiences have shaped the lens um, for your reading the Bible today that, that might be a gift for others, that might be meaningful for others? Um, uh, what things come to mind as um, when you reflect on your journey and other people who are seeking to read the scriptures in ways that are liberating? Mm, yeah. You know, I think people have made the biggest impact on how I read scripture. I think wow. being in conversation with people as I read the text, um, particularly in, in graduate school was where that first started to take place for me, where I started to realize that, um, that there were many different ways to read the text that I was not aware of. The school that I attended for my undergraduate work was part of the same denomination that I had been raised in. So much was, was kind of the same that I had heard. I didn't really encounter many ideas that, um, that felt challenging to what I had already heard until I was in conversation with others in graduate school, talking mm -hmm. to people from different denominational backgrounds. Some of my professors um, sometimes said things in class that my initial reaction was, oh my God, you know, that's, that's not right. That can't be right. Um, what do I do with this? But it was being able to, to talk with these people and hear more about what led them to that stage in their journey. How did you arrive at this understanding of scripture? What shaped that for you? Um, one of those, one person in particular who had a big impact on me is Estrelda Alexander. Um, she was one of my professors. She's also the author of a number of books related to the Pentecostal and particularly the Black Pentecostal experience, uh, The Women of Azusa Street, Black Fire. Um, she's co-authored a number with Amos Young. She, she really pressed me. She pressed me to think differently, to loosen my grip on some of the, um, the very entrenched ideas that I had related to the Bible, uh, related to social issues. Um, I grew up in a, in a diverse area, but still in a very Eurocentric context. Um, and she challenged me to think in ways that I hadn't before. Um, there were times that she said things that initially I thought that's exactly counter to what I've always, always heard. But the more that we were able to be in dialogue, the way she invited me into that conversation um, allowed me to see a perspective that I had never considered. Um, so through her, through another experience, um, one of my graduate programs was actually at a Jewish institution. And that was kind of another, another layer for me of engaging scripture in a very different context. I was totally unaware that the Jewish history of interpretation on some passages was completely different from the, the tradition of interpretation that I had been exposed to. And one that was particularly liberating for me, uh, my name is Rebecca, as you guys all know now, um, I, guess, I don't know, I'm assuming it's probably pretty wide in Christian traditions just based on what I've heard, but the image of Rebecca is not often positive. Um, she's often viewed in Christian tradition as the one who deceived her husband. You know, she helped her son uh, make the meal and, and deceive Isaac. And growing up, I remember asking my parents at one point, why did you name me Rebecca? <laughs> she's not the good one. She's not the good matriarch in there. 
my mom's response was, well, we love that name, which was great, but it wasn't what I was asking. That wasn't what I cared about at the moment. But when I was studying among my Jewish peers, um, I, I was shocked when I learned that their image of Rebecca was completely different than what I had grown up hearing. She was treated as this matriarch to be celebrated because she heard from God. God spoke to her and she acted in accordance with what God had spoken to her. And along those same lines, at, at that point, I was also reading a lot of early Jewish literature. So early interpretation, some of this literature is already dealing with texts that we now consider scripture. Um, one book, Jubilees, is a rewriting of the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. And in Jubilees, oh my goodness, she's matriarch par excellence. She completely <laughs> overshadows Isaac. You can tell the author doesn't like Isaac at all. Rebecca is elevated <laughs> to the point where she's the one who's pronouncing all of these blessings. I mean, Pentecostal woman, she's got her hands up, you know, blessing, all kinds of stuff. Um, but she is, she's this amazing figure in Jubilees. And I remember thinking, how did I not know this? How was I not aware that, that there's this whole other tradition about Rebecca, my namesake, um, where she's, she's the hero. She's amazing. Um, so that was kind of another layer for me, engaging with people who thought differently, but then also engaging um, different, different texts, early interpretations that I was unfamiliar with before that. All of that started to shape and influence my approach to the text, kind of broaden the way that, that I thought about the text. Hmm. That's so fun. Yeah, it's really cool to hear, you know, just especially for your own name, right? That's just kind of a neat experience to literally have a rereading, a more liberative, even understanding of your own name is a powerful experience. So uh, I we would love for you um, to take us into the text. You know, you talked about how you were on this journey of kind of growing through dialogue with others and also just the impacts of you know, early Jewish interpretation. So I'd be curious for us, for you to lead us in dialogue around this text and particularly for us to see maybe how um, some of your insights from um, early Jewish interpretation might maybe add more layers to how we might read uh, this text as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I came back to the New Testament and to the idea of the kingdom of God after a detour for a while in my academic pursuits in Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason I love this text so much is because it looks totally different to me now mm. than when I had read it previously. Mm. Growing up in the church, I, I had the Old Testament, the New Testament. I was very familiar with those stories. It was not until grad school that I realized there was a whole bunch of other literature that I didn't even know existed. And of course, a lot of this is the Dead Sea Scrolls and other early Jewish texts that we have, but because they're not part of the Protestant canon, they were not things that, um, that were, were part of my world. They were things that were not taught. We didn't read them. We didn't really talk about them. They were kind of taboo. Um, so once I started engaging the literature of the Qumran group in particular, that really mm. interested me, thinking about their... Um, their ideas, what they, what they meant when they talked about the last days, because this comes up in the New Testament. And the whole notion of the kingdom of God as being present has to do with that idea of, of being in the last days, the sort of imminent eschatology, that something has shifted with the Christ event, um, but it's not fully manifest yet. 
so part of my interest in the Qumran literature very much has to do with um, with what what we still have to learn. The Dead Sea Scrolls were only discovered, um, you know, 70 years ago. So mm -hmm. there's still a lot of work to be done in that area in understanding early Judaism, the diversity of early Judaism and um, and the beliefs that that shape that period. Um, but in addition to that, I feel like it, for me at least, it has really changed the way that I read the New Testament scriptures, um, seeing it through the light of Qumran and what people were doing in the period just before Jesus. Um, something that we encounter a lot when we talk about New Testament eschatology and the kingdom of God, the already not yet um, idea. We encounter this idea, it's often referred to as a two age scheme like a, a present world and a world to come. There's this assumption that there are two ages. And for many New Testament scholars, the assumption has been that the Christ event or that um, what's happening in, in emerging Christianity is something novel. Um, the mm. idea of an already not yet is something that's, that's brand new um, with the Jesus followers, with those who are seeing the Christ event as this initiation of a sort of liminal state with the inauguration of the kingdom of God, with this sense that we're in the last time, something has happened, but we're still awaiting the full culmination of that. Hmm. So there, there has been for a long time kind of an assumption in New Testament scholarship that this is brand new. This is a Christian innovation. It's a Pauline innovation. Um, and only recently has that really been called into question. And a number of people who work in early Jewish literature have started to, or have have, um, have brought to light the diversity of eschatology in early Jewish literature, that we don't necessarily just have a two-age scheme, but we have periodization of history. We have lots mm -hmm. of different ways of framing history and time and thinking about the eschaton. And in terms of, of the Qumran movement, um, what I'm noticing is that there very much is this sense that the present is a liminal space. And perhaps not that unlike some New Testament notions of the kingdom of God. And something that, that has struck me about Qumran that I think can shed light on what's going on in, um, in New Testament scholarship or in, sorry, not New Testament scholarship, but in the New Testament, in the notion of the kingdom of God, um, is understanding a little bit more about what they thought about the present. What did they think was actually happening in that last days period? What did it mean for them to live in the last days, to worship in the last days? What did they think they were doing through their worship, through their communion with an angelic host? Um, for me, that has shed light on, on the notion of the kingdom of God. Um, and so before I, I move right to the text, um, real briefly, I want to mention one other thing about the Qumran movement. Something that I'm writing about and thinking about right now is that in their perception of the last days, they view themselves as making the future present in some sense through their actions. Mm. So they're living in the last days, but for them, this last days is a period. It's like a space-time that's qualitatively distinct from anything that's come before. So in that period, there is for members of this group an opportunity to have a communion that's not available elsewhere or widely, mm -hmm. but is reserved for members of this group in this time, in this last day's time period. 
So they see themselves as doing something really different and already having this, this sense of living into this future reality, living into a heavenly reality, a permanent, uh, permanent existence with God and his angels. And so when I read a text like um, Luke 10, where Jesus sends out the 70, and then we get over to verse eight, and he says, whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, hear the sick who are there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Mm. Something different is going on. Jesus is, is changing the rules, so to speak, or the expectations in what they're to do. Um, they're not to bring anything. There's a sense of imminence. But this notion that the kingdom of God has come near you, that they're to announce the kingdom of God has come near you with their presence, to me indicates that their presence, what they're doing, but also just their presence has something to do with making present the kingdom of mm -hmm. God. Yeah. When thinking about the kingdom of God as people, notions of the, the people as the temple of God, um, the body of Christ, I think all of that plays into this idea that the kingdom is being made present through the actions of its citizens. Rebecca, I, uh, this is so exciting. For, uh, I mean, cards on the table. Any, I, I used to pastor in Pentecostal charismatic circles like and, and churches. Um, and so um, it's sometimes hard to um, communicate to others who um, might have a much more like rational um, reading of scripture. I didn't mean that to sound as harsh as it came out, but <laughs> like, um, not, not that I'm talking about irrational, but I've seen that as well. Uh, but the irrational kind of sense of um, uh, how a spirituality or mysticism um, could uh, ignite um, a, a political vision um, in the positive sense, but I guess in any sense that um, could be possible. But even talk of like latter rain or um, uh, end times, although kind of um, uh, is, a, is, a, is a poor reflection on what you're inviting us into. Um, and one of the things that comes to mind for me, and Rebecca, correct me because um, uh, you're the expert on the Qumran um, communities, but uh, it, it was years ago um, encountering the Isaiah Targums. Um, am I pronouncing that correctly? Tar like it's yeah, the, the Targumim. Yeah. Um, uh, would you, um, because how they translated um, the name of God um, in a number of those was so exciting for like young 20-year-old Pentecostal Jared who um, is living and starting a Catholic worker community and uh, identifies as an Anabaptist, only I've read it in books and never met one. So um, uh, that stuff about how um, they, the name of God is interpreted the kingdom of God. Um, and even what Jesus is doing, like a little earlier in Luke, um, uh, where he has his Eugene Peterson um, moment and <laughs> does, here's uh, the pop take on, um, in Luke 4, um, on Isaiah 61, um, where he reinterprets it, like, because we're talking about the equivalent of, like, before the Second Vatican, going from um, Latin into the colloquial language of the people. Would you open some of that stuff up? Because I'm finding this really exciting, really exciting. Yes. Oh, gosh. So I'm nervous that I'm, I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. Um, so in thinking about the socio-political implications, is that part of what you're thinking about? 
But for me, um, realizing that the name of God was interpreted the kingdom of God in um, uh, these texts that came out um, of the Qumran community um, gave me insight into uh, what I knew um, in my own worship and my own experience is that um, the kingdom isn't a place and certainly nothing we're, we're going to, but it's a presence and what it's coming here. And what I heard you kind of start to, to spell out and invite us into is that kind of awareness that um, uh, this, this kind of um, spirituality doesn't have to be monopolised by, you know, conspiracy theorists and those who want to overthrow democracy with authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. um, but am I getting the sense that you're inviting us into something that is um, an experiential um, program for acting differently? Absolutely. I think it is, it's portrayed as a very different type of a space. And mm -hmm. I think spatial theory is really helpful for thinking about mm -hmm. the type of space the kingdom of God is. Um, just really briefly, Henry Lefebvre, Edward Soja are some of the, um, the people who have worked on the spatial triad idea that we can think of three different types of space. One is a geographical space. So like the room that we're in that has four walls or our city, something with boundaries, something very tangible. Second, there's a, another type of space that's more of a perceived space, a mental space. We could think about a map, um, being able to plot some notion of space on a map. Um, and then the third type of space really is that lived reality, that experiential space. And I think that's what's going on here. It's a space that it's very real. It's not to say that it's not real at all, but it's, it's not a geographical space. And I think that was part of the misunderstanding, the conflict that we see sometimes in the gospels. Mm -hmm. um, this was not a kingdom that was going to overthrow the Roman empire. Um, and I don't, I don't think that was, that was the, um, not that it wasn't intended, but that's some of the play that we see there, that there's this misunderstanding between, behind what the kingdom of God actually is. And part of that is because initially there was an expectation. I think there was a very real expectation that the Messiah would be some sort of a political leader who would reestablish a prominent kingdom for Israel. And that didn't happen. And I think, you know, because of a number of events, the trauma of losing the temple in 586, the desecration under Antiochus Epiphanes in um, the middle of the second century, kind of a re-traumatizing, this realization that, that the temple, the physical space was not secure, and it was probably never going to be secure. There was a shift that happened. And I think that shift started even with the destruction of the first temple and continued um, you know, through these repeat traumatizations um, of losing the temple, of losing that space, of being, being exiled, being in the diaspora, um, not having access to that physical sacred space. There was a shift and, and part of that we're seeing at Qumran and we're seeing more of that in the New Testament as well, this notion that the kingdom of God is not a physical space, but it's a space that is made real through God, through his presence. So the Isaiah Targum and the even that shift in language that the kingdom of God is, is realized in that presence, um, but then also in its citizenry, that it's something mm. that is made ever more present, ever more permanent through those that act in accordance with um, 
with the nature, the values of that kingdom. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I remember I'm having a quick flashback, and I certainly did not drop all the wisdom that Rebecca just did, but I remember um, quite a while ago, I got into it a little bit with Scott McKnight on um, mm -hmm. Twitter. <laughs> Because <laughs> mm -hmm. he had dropped a book on, I don't know if you remember this, Jared, at all, but um, he had dropped a book on the King God. But I think he was like really, really committed to this idea of like geographical space in terms of talking yeah. about the kingdom of God. Um, and I think we, anyway, we got into it a little bit because I, I was thinking more in terms of, I think my pushback was, I think I was saying more, you know, wherever Christ is present, and thinking about it in terms of both embodiment and also just the very That's presence right. of Christ. Um, so I was thinking in presence and embodiment, uh, but not to the fullness of what Rebecca was saying. But um, but I was, but it was interesting just his very strong commitment to geographical space um, in terms of how he was thinking about the kingdom of God, which is yeah, I don't know, just different, I guess. But, but it, it is, yeah, it is, and there are some that still think in those terms, um, and it's. There, there are certainly different ways that people have conceptualized this. Um, but as I read the New Testament, as I think about the way that the kingdom of God is described, I have a hard time personally imagining it in terms other than a sort of experiential space. And again, not that the experiential space is very real. It's, you know, sometimes yeah. I think our brain kind of automatically goes to that place of if it's not physical, if it's not geographical, it's not as real, but it is. And it's a space that's already present, and I think becoming ever more realized um, through through those who are in it. Yeah, I think this is where um, uh, I was in a conversation this morning about um, the theology of Dr. Randy Woodley, and I know that Drew has written an endorsement for his latest book, book which is yeah. coming out. Um, and uh, what it is to um, listen to First Nations people articulate um, Christian theology around the world that the relationship um, between things and um, what it is for um, to think about place, um, uh, not in terms of boundaries, but in terms of what relates, um, that that's a, a worldview um, shift, which um, I think, you know, uh, those who feature as characters and communities in the New Testament and those that don't, like the Qumran, community because they're doing their own um, eschatological thing uh, away from um, the, the filth of everything else that's going on. Um, I think they would understand that a lot better than those of us who have been formed um, uh, in, you know, the fallout of um, a colonial late great capitalism and, and all its effects. Yeah, absolutely. And even thinking about the influence of the Enlightenment on our thinking, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, very defined boundaries around certain things and rational thought, I think we're dealing with a very different type of mindset in this time. Yeah. And, um, and I want to be cautious, too, with my words when I, when I talk about the kingdom of God being defined by those who are in it. I think it, it goes beyond a confessional perspective there. I think a lot of it has to do more with actions, mm -hmm. with those who are acting out in the way that the New Testament authors would understand perhaps um, kingdom ethics and values. And yeah. I think a lot of that, um, you know, I get excited thinking about 
the discussions that happen here on inverse and the work of anti-racism and social justice. And I think all of that is very much a part of, of this image of kingdom ethics, that yeah. the kingdom of God is present for the New Testament authors in, in this sort of reversal of, um, of expectations or of um, a reversal of power. Mm. You know, in the way Jesus describes the kingdom, it's those those who are in the kingdom are not those who most would expect when they hear the word kingdom. You think of the powerful, you think of those that have social status, but Jesus is constantly showing that, no, those are not, those aren't the ones who define the kingdom that he's talking about, but it's those that would be considered more the other, mm. those who would normally be left out. Mm. Thank you. That, that's um, a very gracious like, hyperlink um, from the text. You, you did have us um, uh, it, grounded in um, this talk of um, verse 9, the kingdom of God is near you before um, you graciously gave me permission to <laughs> drag you <laughs> into what was exciting me. Um, so full permission to, to return to the text and take us where you want, Rebecca. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. My goodness. Um... I think in thinking about the presence of the kingdom, that's that's really the thing that sticks with me. Um, the more that I think about the kingdom of God in the New Testament and this notion of being near, and it's very much what you were what you were mentioning. I don't think it was really a sidebar at all, but this notion that that it's defined by presence, it's defined by action, much more so than, or even in place of geographical boundaries, mm. uh, but it very much is an experiential place very real, um, but a very different type of a, a place, different type of a place than we're used to conceptualizing. Mm. Which to bring us back to Isaiah is the language that is like um, to take the Lord of hosts or um, uh, the, the, the name of God and translate it the kingdom of God and then to see where it actually fits in these passages it's about god's deliverance it's about light it's about healing it's about um uh, uh water in deserts it's um uh, flourishing where we it's it's not something static and it's not something elsewhere it's the action of god which um uh enables immobilizes um empowers the action of a people living into that reality um so so grace in light of what you're sharing, isn't um, a status change as much it is a, um, and not merely pardon, but empowerment, right? Like it, it, it's something that sends um, us working in, in ways that otherwise weren't possible as a community together. Am, am I hearing you right? Yes, absolutely. I, you know, the word that often comes to me is that it's a, a space that's qualitatively different mm. than other spaces. And, um, and I love what you mentioned earlier, too, about the implications for this understanding on the way that we, we view end times sort of things, eschatology. Mm -hmm. um, in our current situation, you know, there's been a lot of kind of a revival of, um, of expectations and attempts to, to kind of pin down the end times or to relate current events to, to things in the book of Revelation. We often see kind of that momentum that picks up with um, when things are happening in the world. And we're seeing that yeah. again now. 
Um, but I think seeing it in this way, thinking about the kingdom of God and eschatology in the Bible in this way kind of shifts that perspective from the expectation of um, one, being able to like discern or, you know, put, put the pieces together so precisely, but also um, it moves us to think more in terms of presence. And mm -hmm. one thing that struck me about the book of Revelation, um, the first time I was asked to write a paper on it in school, is that it was all about presence. Um, getting to the, yeah. the end of the book of Revelation, it, it was about a person. It wasn't about events so much it was it was a person at the end of the book of revelation and in in the kingdom of god idea i think that's very much present as well in terms of thinking of a, a space that's qualitatively different and is becoming um, becoming more present more permanent through actions um, it's a it's a different view of eschatology than we sometimes think of mm. I mean, that's so powerful. And I mean, Drew and I, we, we often find ourselves discussing the work of Dr. Willie James Jennings um, mm -hmm. and just thinking even in the intro and um, the Bible curriculum and Jennings, the importance he places on challenging Christians' supersessionism, um, that uh, Christians replace the Jews. And I guess what we see in a lot of um, kids' Bibles, um, and, and kids Sunday school material is is literally a visual representation of North yeah. African Middle Eastern people <laughs> replaced by um, European um, people who um, had uh, Christianity play chaplain to killing, stealing, killing and destroying, right? Like, um, and the, the importance of how eschatology plays out in that project is it is about reading political um, uh, happenings for justifying um, a utilitarian um, ethic um, to make God's history turn out right versus what you're inviting us into, um, which doesn't replace anyone but includes us in a people. Um, so it's right for, you know, um, European kids or kids descended from Europeans to see North Africans and Middle Eastern people all the time and not see themselves represented. It, it's right in terms of like the, the history at the time, but it's also right in terms of what we're being invited into, into our baptism and how do we then participate in it? Because this isn't our story. By grace, we've been grafted in to um, the, the creator um, who hears the cries of the oppressed. And this story is being told, it's underway in the most surprising of ways. And it's a participatory reality, right? Like it's it's something that actually asks something of us. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love how you just framed that with the, the inclusiveness that we are grafted in, that we are becoming part of something that was already in motion and is still in motion. Mm -hmm. um, not the, the replacement of something, um, but but that we get to be a part of it as well. I think it is a much more inclusive picture uh, than we've sometimes heard. I know you are, I believe this semester you are teaching, right? First year students, some of this kind of stuff. How's that going? A little bit. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love that class. I get to yeah. do a first year seminar. Um, I call it Between the Testaments. And we study a lot of the Dead Sea Scroll texts. Of course, in one seminar, one semester, 
we can only touch on so much with all the other things that we need to do in this particular class. Right. But it is so much fun um, to get freshmen, you know, their first semester, they haven't had Bible yet. Many of them know the Bible. They've, they've already, um, you know, been exposed. They've, they're familiar with a lot of the Bible, but um, they engage this literature and it is brand new. And there's an excitement, there's a freedom in working with it that, um, you know, you don't have to worry about some of the same constraints um, that are often there that are just kind of feel present right. for, for students dealing with the text that's part of the canon. These are texts that there's a little bit more freedom in terms of engaging them and asking questions and, and seeing things in these texts. So it's a lot of fun to see how students, um, how they engage this literature. And then what that does for them, oh man, one thing I'm learning is that as these students then go into Bible classes afterwards, there's a different perspective that they bring with them. Of course, they've, they've been exposed to this whole world of early Jewish literature that in some ways has created more context for them as they engage both the Old Testament and the New Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and then the New Testament as well. Um, but they, they also just have a, a somewhat different approach um, to engaging, engaging scripture as well. It's really neat to see how it shapes their perspective. Wow. Rebecca, I made a summary of um, uh, what I've read of others. I've never engaged the like Qumran text directly, but it, this kind of uh, stereotype, which I trotted out earlier in terms of um, a holy huddle caught up with apocalyptic vision of um, uh, the Pharisees, um, let alone like the Sadducees and the Herodians are clearly the problem, but even the Pharisees have, have mm -hmm. compromised um, and we're going to go do our own thing in the hills and um, live as a large commune uh, and everything else can go to hell. It, is, that, is that accurate? Like, are there nuances? <laughs> Would you bring... Um, um, no, I wouldn't say that this is a group that you would want to emulate in terms of their ideas, in terms of <laughs> inclusiveness. <laughs> um, yes, they were a very exclusivist sect. Um, two years initiation process, it was pretty extreme. And when they talk about what's going on in their group, they really mean their group. They redefine themselves as Israel. So they are, they are the Israel. They are the, um, the, the latter days tradents of the Abrahamic covenant. So they see themselves as a sort of remnant within a remnant, but they, they are the ones that they believe that they will inherit the promises to Abraham. So they're not as inclusive as, um, as we might like them <laughs> in terms of an example to follow. Um, yes, they are, they are very exclusivist. <laughs> what do you think they would make of um jesus's ministry and teachings what things would they go yes to and what things would they go hell no to like what what things mm -hmm. are sorry i'm australian that's that's not um that's what australians say when they're not swearing but i'm aware that <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. um what what things is there like a strong no and what things uh um would they go jesus might be on to something there yeah you know, my response to this probably would have been different before recently reading parts of, I'm 
sad to say I haven't gotten all the way through it, that Matthew Thiessen's book, Jesus and the Forces of Evil. Oh. Um, because initially I might've thought that one of the main points of difference is um, their concern for ritual purity. They are a community that is very committed to maintaining a sort of ritual purity. And they see that as one of the preconditions for living in this end time period and being able to commune with angels. So they have incredibly strict stipulations for their self-governance. Um, you know, Jesus seems to eschew a lot of purity um, standards. However, as, as Matthew Thiessen has pointed out in his book, he does still, the gospel writers are, are careful in some of their framing. He does mm -hmm. still seem to work within some of these expectations of ritual purity. Um, but in terms of in inclusiveness, um, I think they probably would have had a hard time with some of the people that Jesus was associating with and considered part of his kingdom um, oh. compared to what they were anticipating. And I think, you know, some of that might have come out of trauma too, just in thinking about um, what they what they thought about the world. Um, and I, I don't know if this is a great comparison, um, but I've I've been in more conservative circles and in more progressive circles. And something that I have noticed in, in some conservative circles is there's a, there are some deeply held beliefs that have to do with, um, with, with fear of being excluded. And, oh. um, and there's a sincerity there that may not make a lot of sense to some, um, but it, it's, a very, it's a very real feeling and sense for those who are in it. Um, there's a commitment, there's a, it's, yeah. Um, I feel like I'm not framing this very well. But no, it, no, um, maybe if you could uh, ground it in a, a practical example, can you think of a particular kind of belief that would be articulated by um, people in those circles um, that illustrates that? Yes, I guess I'm thinking along the lines of um, who in some in some circles, who some would think would be included in God's kingdom or in who would who would be able to go to heaven. And it's maybe people who do these things and people who do these other things. Speaking tongues. <laughs> Perhaps speaking in tongues. Um, or Baptism you know, by immersion. Yes, or live a pure lifestyle, you know, whatever that right. means. Um, you know, so these certain things, you follow these certain rules, these expectations, and you're in. And you know, I mean, so yes, it's salvation by faith, but, you know, action is also there. And these are the actions that you, you need to keep. And then, then you can have some certainty. Um, and I think Qumran was operating kind of in that sense as well, that actions were very, um, very compelling for them. They were central to, to what they thought needed to happen in order to preserve their form of community in the present that enabled them to, to commune with angels in the present, um, but also to secure their future. They, I love the language that they use of of God already preparing a lot for them. It's the Hebrew term garal, which can mean um, like a, a space, like an allotment of land, that there is already a lot that's reserved for them in heavenly places. 
So not only do they have the sense that they are already worshiping with angels in the present in their worship rituals. So in, in these moments, they are already communing with angels, but through these actions, they are living into the sort of permanent existence where they will inhabit spaces, the heavenly space with these angels. And for them, their actions are all so central to this. Only those who are part of this social construct and abide by these particular rules to maintain a pure community. So they see themselves very much as, as a sort of substitute for the temple. They envision themselves as a human sacrifice. They use that language as a, of a sacrifice that's already ascending to heaven in some way, but their worship is perceived as a sacrifice something else we later see in the New Testament as well. Hmm. Um, and I think all of this for them is, is partly contingent or largely contingent on, on their actions. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, this is good. I, you know, I was thinking about, so, cause it's, you were, I guess, kind of thinking about the Qumran community in relationship to like kind of white conservative anxieties a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I was wondering like, so when I think about like separatist movements in the US at least, mm -hmm. um, and immediately like, I think like on one hand, you know, you got like black nationalism and then you got like this like white fundamentalism and they're very different, though there are some similarities, but they're also very different. And I and I'm wondering, like, is the Qumran community a little bit more like black nationalists in terms mm -hmm. of a radical critique, right, of the entire system and creating? I'm curious what you think about that comparison um, as a way of kind of thinking about where they're coming from um, as they separate. Yeah, perhaps they are. They're certainly commenting on what is going on. They're not okay with the leadership that's in control. Um, these are, this is not a valid priesthood in their minds. Um, the temple has been purified, but it's a defunct temple. So they are separatists in the sense that they are, they are not okay with the current uh, religious political structure in place. And they are doing something revolutionary. At least that's how they perceive it. They are creating a new, a new society and they're living that reality and they, they see themselves as in living this reality, they are already becoming um, something different, something heavenly. Yeah. Which is uh, amazing to like spell out and start to paint in vivid colors for people because you can suddenly understand um, for uh, the Jewish people um, that move throughout um, uh, the gospel narratives, the different options that in play and how what Jesus is inviting people into would sound like a, a holiness that is embrace of those who uh, are seen as um, holding up the day of um, uh, God's liberation. Um, that is such a radical challenge um, for, for some, like let alone the Pharisees are actually in the midst of um a common life in the marketplace, but to have a community that's like, no, it's at least a, a two-year novitiate um, before you're actually um, down with like hanging out with the angels. Like that's a, <laughs> that's a different level of intensity. And Drew, uh, as you were saying that, I thought of, um, you know, that classic Spike Lee joint, um, Malcolm X, and the, the scene 
where you have on a Malcolm X is going to speak at a university campus and uh, there is a, a white student and she comes up to Malcolm X and is like, what right. part can I play? What? Right. Um, and um, uh, it's like, this isn't for you. And right. it can be hard for people to understand when um, assimilation into something slightly better that's being tweaked is the goal versus um how do we actually have something that isn't death dealing from our people? And you're not even a consideration in that. Like um, you're descended from the people who enslaved us. Um, this isn't your project. And to where Jesus gets associated with something that's merely assimilation um, and a tweaking versus um, what is it to take seriously uh, the, the same sense that the Qumran community have of uh uh, eschatological alternative taking place and that's what Jesus is doing but that's why he is inviting in sex workers and tax collectors not why he's excluding them mm -hmm. then you get something of like the dynamic um, texture of what Jesus is doing and what it means for us to be incorporated in that today absolutely and I think sometimes the Pharisees get a really bad rap in the New Testament yeah totally and worse in our preaching my goodness yeah. Right, right. And yep. there, I mean, there's some important work being done right now on perhaps what, what might be an interpharisaical debate between Jesus yes. and right. the Pharisees, that perhaps he's yep. not so outside those right. bounds, but is reforming from the inside. Right. Out of in proximity, right. Yep. right. Right, right. And to think yep. of it in those in those terms, I think is yep. so, so powerful too. Um, but he, you know, his language is very reflective of Hillel, a prominent... That's right teacher from the time yeah. um so yeah it's it's interesting to think about those implications of what what jesus is doing what the new testament authors perceive him as doing what sort of a revolution or change or reformation is he inspiring and who who is he in dialogue with yeah and jesus I, having a go at his own people who reformed yeah. him and not in the Jewish sense generally, but Pharisees as, um, uh, you know, their position towards um, the Romans that like he shares, but it's been like, it, it's a, a revolutionary pharisaical vision that Jesus is inviting into. Um, and that's been missed on so many, um, yeah. you know, thanks to reformers like Luther and others who <laughs> have yeah. uh, used these texts as an excuse for anti-Semitism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think about my own, like the folks that I um, get most frustrated with, and it is the folks that I'm usually, it's like close enough proximity, right? Like they're just a little bit different and they drive me crazy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> More than sometimes the folks that are like, wait. And so I think like even thinking about that um, helps maybe frame some of the differences and the debates that are happening with Jesus and the Pharisees there. Um, it's it's a inner family conversation in many ways, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. Yeah. So so to read the the gospels, um, to pick up the Willie James Jennings line is to be incorporated in this in inner family debate, um, uh, not to re replace it, um, right. but what it is to um, uh, uh, sit alongside Jesus in that debate in appreciation realizing that you've been led in by grace that you're actually a guest here yeah yeah absolutely yeah. that's a that's a big shift that's happened in 
in biblical scholarship, particularly New Testament scholarship, I think in the past 50 years or so, is this recognition more of, of Jesus' context, of the context of the New Testament, that this is a Jewish context, this is a Jewish world we're dealing with. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily Christian yet, or the idea that mm-hmm. we that we associate with Christian, yeah. but a lot of the questions that Paul is dealing with, um, and even the way that he frames things like the law are, are not in opposition to Jewish ideas that are current. Yes. Yeah. So Rebecca, with that in mind, to return to the text, you said something at the start, which I was like, wow, it, it was just like a throwaway as you were setting up the text for us, as any good teacher does. I, I deeply appreciate that. Um, where you mentioned eat what is set for you um, uh, in in the context, something I've never considered before is that um, in light of um, participation in um, this hope for like final resurrection, the cosmic cleanup of all things, as Cross puts it, um, that somehow is is breaking in in Jesus uh, prior to his own resurrection or reading this in light of his resurrection regardless of the hermeneutic you use yeah there was a this little line um eat what is set before you and the possible playing of um uh kosher understandings would you speak to that some because i I was like whoa yeah yeah i wish i was more prepared on this one i do have some thoughts but it's not something i have looked at um in depth recently but um but you know, I, I think along the lines of this this idea that both at Qumran, in the way they're understanding the last days, and in the notion of the kingdom of God, that we're dealing with a qualitatively different space, that something significant has shifted, and that there's this understanding that in this space, the rules or the boundaries have shifted as well. And I don't think Jesus is saying here that that's not important, um, that I don't think he's saying, oh, those people who practice these these dietary um, traditions, they're wrong, or that just needs to be thrown out completely. But I think he's giving priority to relationship, um, to to spreading the kingdom. Mm. Um, I think that it's more it's more about emphasis and priority than it is, again, about replacement or casting off the old and saying we're going an entirely different direction now, but more so saying that in this time, in this space, for what's happening now, that's secondary. So Mm. eat what is set before you, because what's more important is that you're able to to have relationship with these people. Which, I mean, sounds like merely a direct quote from Paul in Romans, like the kingdom of God is not merely a matter of eating and drinking, but of justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, right? Like justice is what God's present looks like, um, uh, uh, joy and, and the Holy Spirit, like that, that's what happens when we participate in this presence that's been named as a kingdom. Um, or to connect it to like we're in Luke 10, but to spend time in his sequel, if we're in Acts 10, suddenly we're talking about Cornelius, right? And right. He, he, here we have... That's um, what came to my mind, yeah. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, yeah. Go there, Drew, go there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just the encounter. And so you it's kind of anticipating and, you know, that encounter between Peter and Cornelius and Peter's in some ways being prepared by God for this new moment that has broken in, right? And for the new relationships that are possible between Jew and Gentile. 
And in many ways, it's interesting because it goes both ways. I mean, I always think that passage is interesting when I think about, um, is it, is it Cornelius? Now I'm forgetting which way it goes. This, does Cornelius bows down to Peter, right? <laughs> and then Peter tells mm-hmm. him to get back up. I'm just a man or whatever. But, um, but, but there's, they're trying to figure this thing out because this new thing is happening, this space, right? This liminal space yeah. has opened up and they're kind of awkward and fumbling through um, what that means. And I think it's a pretty powerful, but yeah, this eat what's set before you is anticipating all of this that is bursting open into actual space and relationships with others and, and how they can have table fellowship with one another in ways that seemed impossible just prior to that. Yeah, I think Jesus says something along the same lines in Matthew as well. There's the the mention of um, it's not what you eat, it's not what goes into you or what comes out of you that's important, but it's it's about your speech, you know. Right. um, So again, it's not like the physical, um, it's not the diet, it's not even the concern with purity issues on the other end, um, but it's Jesus kind of ups the ante on those things that. Um, the stakes are even higher. It's more about what you think, what you, what you, um, what you say. Yeah. And, and framing that in the context of um, this isn't replacement, this isn't um, downloading uh, the newest software, um, but instead it's about what time it is. And if you, if you understand what time it is, if you understand what God's doing, that God's presence is breaking into this moment well, um, we now understand the law in light of this, this happening, this event, um, uh, yeah. to use philosophical language, which changes everything. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's another similarity between what's going on at Qumran and in the kingdom of God stuff. Because mm. at Qumran, you have to be part of the group. You have to have the special knowledge of the group to even know that you're living in the last days and then to be able to act accordingly. And then in the New Testament, we have all of these parables, the kingdom of God is like, mm-hmm. and you know, those who can understand the parables, who can understand what's going on here, those are the ones then that have the capacity to live according to these, these new, these redefined kingdom principles. There's this, this sense of you have to know, and Jesus speaks, not that he's trying to exclude others, but the parabolic language is even a really interesting feature in that. That's good. So good. So good, Rebecca. This has been good. Grateful to have you on. And I think in a moment we'll uh, transition. Um, That way I know um, folks I'm sure would like to ask some questions, but um, but thank you for making some time. Um, I feel like uh, we um, definitely before we go, definitely want to um, give you an opportunity to close out and pray for our listeners. Um, as you think about all the different folks, we've got listeners from all over the world and um, helping them think through um, what this means as you talk about presence and as you talk about what it means to embody, uh, you know, a different life, right? Um, in this liminal space that we can experience right now, um, we would be honored if you'd uh, just spend a moment to just pray over our listeners as they uh, think about what this means for their own lives. Absolutely. God, I thank you so much for this time that we've had together. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for the opportunity to connect um, 
all across the place that from so many different locations and spaces and um, experiences we're able to come together and think about these things together and really try to process and understand what this means for the way that we live in the world, the way that we live among each other, the way we relate and treat each other. And God, I pray that something, something that was said tonight would help us to think about our own role in this. What does it mean for us to live in the kingdom? What does it mean um, for those of us who, who see ourselves as in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to make that present? What sort of a kingdom are we living in and how can we how can we do our part in living out the sort of kingdom um, that you would have us be a part of? And Lord, I pray that um, that for those that are in times of hardship right now, as there's so much, so much going on, so much heaviness, Lord, I pray that you would meet them where they are. Um, God, we touched on it just a little bit, but as we talked about the otherness and the the unexpected who are part of the kingdom, Lord, for those that are maybe feeling like they're on the outskirts or maybe not finding a place of belonging, God, I pray that you would, you would speak to them. Lord, I pray that they would feel a sense of belonging and hope, um, restoration even, just in experiencing your presence in a new way. We love you, Lord. Thank you for, for who you are and and for all you've done for us. In your name, amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.